seek the Lord as we come to consider his word together this morning, which we have sung and read. Lord, we praise you for this gathering of your people. We praise you that we now in Christ are the temple of the living God. We praise you that your glory fills this temple. That is, that through the sacrifice of Christ, we have come by your grace to be filled with your spirit and to gather as your people, to gather in your presence in a unique way. We pray now that you would open the word to our understanding that by the spirit we would gain what we should as we seek to know you and follow as new covenant believers in Christ. For those who know not Christ, we pray that you'd bring them to saving faith, that you would enlighten them to see the wonder of your glory which filled the ancient tabernacle. And that glory which is now, that now shines from the face of Christ, where we see your glory. May we be drawn to that light today. We ask that you'd meet with us and teach us in Christ's name. Amen. A sage somewhere observed that there is no pillow so soft as a clear conscience. With characteristic wit, Mark Twain scoffed, a clear conscience is just a sure sign of a bad memory. Well, I think both statements are really have some worth to them. On one hand, a troubled conscience can certainly wreak havoc on one's well-being. The burden of guilt can steal sleep. It can twist relationships, it can spawn bad decisions, compromise health, and more. On the other hand, conscience can fail. Sins that ought to trouble our conscience go undetected or they fade from memory. This is uniquely true, I think, for those of us living as we do in a culture that views almost any guilt feeling as suspect if not even neurotic, we're told to find our own truth, to prioritize self-expression. Permit no one to tell you who you should be, what you must become, and God forbid, do not let anyone correct you. Such a cultural environment dulls the conscience. And yet every true follower of Jesus is well acquainted with a condemning conscience. The conscience bears general witness to what is right and what is wrong in the eyes of God. And the conscience accuses us of violating God's will when we do or commending us for walking in obedience to Him. The conscience is not God. The conscience is not perfect. It is sometimes not rightly calibrated. And it sometimes needs to be taught. But our conscience as followers of Christ is very sensitized, we should say, at least to two sides of a simple coin. On the first side, we know that God is of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Habakkuk 1 and verse 13 He is repulsed by those who break his law, and he stands as the final judge. On the other side of the coin, we know that God demands of us to be holy as he is holy, Leviticus 11.44. 
we see these two realities as we come to know God in His Word. His purity and the demand for our purity. And the better we come to know God, the more sensitive is our conscience to the sins that we commit in light of God's holiness. A troubled conscience can provide, actually, searing memories of past sin. Memories that cannot be erased. And so, we've come to appreciate then, as the followers of Christ, the exquisite worth of a clear conscience in full sight of God's moral perfections and our moral impurity. Think of that statement. It takes an awful lot to work it out. A clear conscience in full sight of God's moral perfections and our moral impurity. It seems to defy logic. How can an increasing awareness of my sin, an increasing awareness of God's pristine holiness, couple with an increasingly clear conscience? Far from irrational, this reality is the very beauty of the new covenant that God arranges for us in union with Christ. Chapter 8 of Hebrews, we've considered it uh, last week. The new covenant supersedes and thus replaces the old covenant with God's people. The key provision of that new covenant we find in chapter 8, verses 10 through 12. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Remember it here, verse 10. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God. There will be an internalized understanding of the Word of God as our life. That is one of the implications of the new covenant arrangement that God makes with His people. As we continue on, verse 11, They shall not teach one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know Me. That there will be a a universal knowledge of the Lord for those who are part of that covenant. Verse 12 included as well is that he will remember their sins no more that is there will be forgiveness that is provided so now in chapter 9 the author expands upon the superiority of the new covenant benefits that we enjoy in contrast to the old covenant system and I'd like you to notice there in verse 9 of Hebrews 9 the reference to conscience verse 9 of chapter 9, as he speaks of the Old Covenant, he says that these gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Notice the reference to conscience there in verse 9, and then go forward to verse 14. As he speaks of the New Covenant, he says, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So we have this reference at the conclusion of the first section to conscience and this reference to conscience again in verse 14 which demonstrates to us much of the theme that is here as we continue to consider the benefits of the new covenant arrangement that God has made through the death of Christ. 
We come then to chapter 9, beginning at verse 1, and we see that approaching God under the old covenant was inadequate and it was transitional. He first describes the arrangement of the tabernacle space as we go back into that time and we consider how God's people approached him under that covenant. Chapter 9, verse 1, now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. This earthly place of holiness refers to that tabernacle where God's presence resided amidst his people on the journey between Mount Sinai and the promised land. In verse 2, the author narrows in on that place for a tent, verse 2, for a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand, the table, the bread of presence, and it is called the holy place. So looking through the wall of the tabernacle, and there's some guesswork in this uh, to some degree, but you see this first section here is the holy place. It is a place where the priests ministered daily in the ritual system. This first room is now contrasted with the second room in verse 3. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. So this is obviously referring to this area here which, uh, where the, you see the half of the veil showing just to allow us to look into the side there. But this was that second section which was very different than the first and how it was used. In verse 3, it's referred to here as the most holy place. The Greek text reads, the holy of holies. Uh, some translations use that phrase, more accurate to the original, but the most holy place in some way helps us even more as to the idea of what is intended here. This is the most holy spot in all of Israel, in, on, in, I could say on earth, as God's presence hovered over this Ark of the Covenant. In verse 4, it says, Having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded in the tablets of the covenant. So that Ark in the Holy of Holies, containing these ideas at least originally, in verse 5, above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. He could speak in great detail as to the typological meaning of these pieces of furniture that are arranged as we see here. And you see in that first section, the, the table where the bread was presented, the altar of incense, where incense was burned, and then the, the candelabra, the the uh, light that was provided there by burning of oil in that, in that lampstand. Now the coals from off the altar, verse 4, just notice there, um, having the golden altar of incense in the Ark of the Covenant covered, it's, it's identifying the golden Ark with the most holy place, which is a little problematic because it's clearly outside the most holy place. There's a couple of ways of understanding this. It could be that the incense wafting in there is just is perceived as part of the most holy place. But also there was this truly golden and full of gold, or completely made of gold censer 
that uh, possibly is the reference here because sometimes that Greek word is used that way, not of the altar of incense, but of the censer that held the coals and then the incense put on. This was taken into the most holy place on the Day of Atonement by the high priest. In that ark, we see also the table, tablets of the covenant, these stone tablets which God, when, on which God wrote the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai in the very essence of the Old Covenant. So in verses 1 through 5, what do we have? It's pretty simple, laid out here for us. The author draws attention to the very heart of the Old Covenant between God and Israel, namely this elaborate sacrificial system that's centered around the tabernacle. In Exodus chapters 25 through 40, God carefully laid out what the tabernacle was to look like, how it was to be handled, how it was to be disassembled, carried, and assembled again, how God must be approached on His terms. But more narrowly here, it is important to see that the author draws a distinction between the two rooms. That's going to play significantly into his argument. This is a distinction on which the passage then hinges. This first room compared with this second room. So we see the place, the arrangement of the tabernacle space itself, and then secondly, the ministry of the tabernacle priest in that space is covered here in verses 6 and following. Verse 6, these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. When did this happen? This took place every day. Every day the priests ministered in the holy place, that first section of the tent. They trimmed the lamp, they burned incense on the altar, and once a week they replaced the old bread with new bread on the table of presentation. Busy place. Lots of activity going on. But in contrast, notice verse 7. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of his people. What's the reference? Here to the day of atonement that we find described most fully in Leviticus chapter 16, or known today as Yom Kippur, this elaborate ritual in which the sins of the entire nation were atoned for. It was a kind of annual cleansing, or deep cleaning, so to speak, with respect to sin, with respect to Israel's sin. That ritual involved precise requirements for the high priest as he donned ceremonial robes of beauty. And then he undressed and was washed and put on plain, a plain robe. And then would take animal sacrifice, placing blood in the Holy of Holies, he would be re-robed and then sent a scapegoat into the wilderness as a symbol of the departure of Israel's sins one more year. So the process would move from altar into the Holy of Holies and then turn around and come back out, then taking that scapegoat and sending that goat out into the wilderness in a sense saying, this goat bears the sins of the people. Get them as far away from me as possible. Everything calibrated to speak of the utter holiness of God. 
For the un- he offered sacrifices, you notice here, for himself. It's a key point. Hebrews will make much of that, verse 7. And also for the unintentional sins of the people. This is one of the unfortunate translations that just keeps continuing forward. The unintentional sins. We should think of it not as, oh, I didn't know that was wrong. But rather sins of weakness. Sins that I know it's wrong. Now, it might be unintentional. It might be something that we do that's wrong. Certainly the Israelites under that covenant could commit sins they didn't recognize were wrong. But the idea is more of the sins of weakness. The contrast is with these sins of weakness and sins that the Hebrew puts it as sins with a high hand. A high hand is shaking your fist in the face of God and saying, I will not obey you. That for that sin, there was no sacrifice. There was, in a sense, a blasphemy of the Holy Spirit that said, I want no part of God, His Word, His way. But these, what's described here as unintentional sins is speaks of sins of weakness. Sins that we recognize are wrong, where there is the guilt of sin, the conscience is troubled. These sins... He offers a sacrifice to atone. Verse 8, by this, what's going on here? What's it mean? What's the the significance of it? Um, By uh, Verse 8, by the Holy Spirit, by this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing which is symbolic for the present age. The holy place stands in this author's perception as a symbol of the present age. I believe the footnote in the ESV is the better reading, a reference to the old covenant age, to the age that was then present as opposed to this present age now. But I think he's talking about this age, that is the age we're talking about. That first section of the tabernacle was a symbol. The holy place was a beehive of activity every day by ministering priests. Their ministry in the holy place served to highlight the reality that access to God's presence was extremely limited. And it was far from satisfying. They could come into that most holy place only by a single representative and only one time per year on the Day of Atonement. Depending on how you cut it, could have been two times behind the veil, three, or some suggest even four. But it was just on that one day. Access was denied to everyone else. And so in that first part of the tent, the ministry of the priest in that holy place served to highlight the reality that access to God's presence was extremely limited. It was less than satisfying. So the holy place becomes, as William Lane has said, a spatial metaphor for the time when the first covenant was in force. And what was the net result? Verse 9. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. 
The Old Covenant system sent all the right messages about God's holiness and man's sin. When you saw the high priest with all of this ritual going into that Holy of Holies, on one day, it was clear God is a holy God. And when you saw him coming back out and that goat being sent off into the wilderness, bearing, so to speak, the sins of God's people. It was clear that God is a holy God. You could not miss that. Some of the tradition says that after the high priest walked out of the Holy of Holies, there was a sigh from the people like a gust of wind. What were they sighing about? God didn't kill him. We don't really know why. But God didn't kill him. He accepted the blood of the sacrifice. He sends the message as the goat goes out into the wilderness. We are dirty. We are unclean. Our sins separate us from God. And so there was much there to commend the holiness of God. However, animal sacrifices were unable to satisfy the believer's sense of guilt. The message was sent. But how does this animal sacrifice truly cover sin? It was a graphic reminder that the wages of sin is death. That was clear. But it was death, 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 death. As these animals were slaughtered again and again, day after day, at the tabernacle. There was cost to the worshiper, but not satisfaction. Because the more the sinner came to know God's holiness, the more he came to see his sin, the greater the gap between his sin and true forgiveness Maybe we could illustrate it this way. There's a husband and wife, and the man commits adultery. He feels guilty. He feels dirty. He knows that he has broken God's will, and he's violated this, his relationship with his wife. And so he buys her flowers. Is that going to work? Is that going to cover the sin? He buys her flowers? We'd scoff and say, it's, you know, that's ridiculous. That's certainly not sufficient. But what is? Does he buy her a car? A trip overseas? Does any of this satisfy? Does any of this really work to remove his guilt and to make the relationship right? Can this man pay anything that would truly rid his conscience of the egregious infidelity he's committed against God and his wife? And the answer is, of course not. You can't buy your way out of it. That's not how it's going to work. That might just give us a little sense of where the Israelites were with animal sacrifice. How much is enough? How many sacrificial animals can I offer to cover my guilt before a holy God, my infidelity to Him in my sin? 
And so year after year, through this ritual of the Day of Atonement and the everyday sacrifices of the animals, the net result, verse 9, was that it could not perfect the conscience of the worshiper. It could not clear the conscience. But, verse 10, it would deal only with food and drink and various washings and regulations for the body imposed Here's a beautiful phrase, until the time of reformation. Better translation might be, until the time of the new order. A reference to the new covenant. A reference to what is to come with the ultimate priest and the ultimate sacrifice. Now, this is not to say that the old covenant saint had no sense of forgiveness. Remember Psalm 32. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit is no deceit. There was a sense of the forgiveness of God, but it certainly wasn't ultimately through this animal sacrificial system. The efficacy of animal sacrifices could never fully satisfy the conscience. But verses 11 to 14. We see approaching God under the new covenant is effectual and it is an eternal satisfaction. Chapter 9, verse 11, and when Christ appeared, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. When Christ appeared as a high priest, priest of the good things that have come. That seems to be a summary phrase of the new covenant benefits purchased by his blood and described in chapter 8 verses 10 through 12, especially there ending verse 12, the forgiveness of sin. This is the good things to come, the work that Christ has done. The authors stress that Jesus is the final high priest who fulfills the prophecy of Psalm 110, the prophecy of a priest after the order of Melchizedek. That final high priest fulfilled everything to which the old covenant system pointed. So uh, that's Christ appearing as high priest of these good things, of this new covenant, the point he makes in verse 15. But going back to verse 11, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, that is, he's speaking there of entrance into heaven, into the very presence of the Father, he entered once for all into the holy places. That is, he entered into the presence of God, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So he enters into the throne room of God, and he presents the blood not of an animal, but of his own blood. I don't believe Jesus literally brought some of his blood to heaven, as some argue. But the point is that his bloody death secured eternal redemption for his people. And he presented that cross work to the Father. Notice the phrase, once for all. What does that say to you? It's once for all. This is the final Fully sufficient, never to be repeated act of redemption from sin for all who trust in Christ's death and resurrection for forgiveness. Now let us stop here for a moment. We're going to stop at the table.
in a few moments. But let us stop here before that. And consider the worst sins you have committed against God. What sins have you committed against Him and others? What words, what deeds, what sins of omission, what attitudes, what pride and self-centered autonomy against a holy God? Think of it. And then know this. Jesus Christ died to pay the full penalty of every sin His people ever have or will commit. That's the sacrifice once for all. Chapter 8, verse 12, the forgiveness of sin. Chapter 9 and verse 22, indeed under the law almost everything is purified with blood and without shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sin, but the shedding of His blood provides genuine, final forgiveness. Verse 13, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. That's a reference to an obscure ritual in Numbers chapter 19 that was designed to remove Israel's ritual defilement. So the, the picture here is of the ugliness, the dirtiness of sin. If that was the process under the Old Covenant, now from the lesser to the greater, verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? He is the mediator of this new covenant. So notice verse 14, He offered Himself without blemish. That is, Christ's sacrifice was voluntary. He offered Himself. It was willful. He chose to die in our place. He chose to substitute His death in the place of the death that we deserve to die. And He did so as one without blemish. Which speaks of His sinless perfection. While the wages of sin is death, we can know that Jesus did not die for his sins, but for ours. As a lamb was laid down upon the altar, and the sinner identified with that substitute by putting his hands on the head of that sheep, as that took place, that sheep was innocent of any moral rebellion against God. But now in the ultimate sense, all of that system pointed to the final sacrifice who came without blemish. Taking not his sin to the cross, but ours. I can truly then see the holiness of God. For it purifies the conscience. Because the sinless Savior died... Our sinful souls are set free. The cost is truly paid. The sacrifice is sufficient. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works? 
to purify the conscience says that I can truly see the holiness of God. I can truly see that God is the righteous judge of the living and the dead. I can truly see my sin against the Lord and face without excuse the judgment that I deserve. And yet because of what Christ did, I can have a conscience that shouts, there is no condemnation. To those who are in Christ Jesus, it is finished. No condemnation. And so we can have a clear conscience that is not rooted in our past performance. It's not rooted in hope for our future performance. I'm going to do better in the future. But we can have a clear conscience knowing that Jesus paid the full penalty of every sin that I ever have or ever will commit. It is done. And so we're delivered from dead works. I think it certainly refers to the old covenant system and the process that was taking place there to approach God. We're certainly delivered from that, but it certainly, I think, speaks more widely of every self-dependent act of righteousness. We've been delivered from those dead works to serve the living God. That is, we're not saved so we can sit, so that we can sin with impunity, but rather we are saved to serve God. With devotion. This is the result if we really understand what Christ has done. Philip Hughes puts it nicely. He says, The purging of the conscience from dead works by the blood of Christ is not an end in itself. It is rather the beginning which opens the way for the realization of the end or purpose of our redemption. And that end is described here as to serve the living God. As believers united by faith to Christ, we are now God's temple. We serve now His cause as a kingdom of priests. We pour our lives out for the glory of His name, for the good of His people. And so I think a fair question for each of us who knows Christ as Savior is we have come to trust in this death in our place. Are you serving the cause of Christ? It's so evident here that this is the very purpose of our salvation, that we would be delivered from dead works to serve the living God. If you would say, I don't know that I am serving the cause of Christ, that, I think, would be a genuine source of guilt. In that you're not living out the life that Christ saved you to live. To live a life where you're not advancing the cause of Jesus in some way or other is wholly inconsistent with the very purpose of your salvation. Some of us just may need to be encouraged. It's easy for false guilt to come in here and say, I do nothing for Christ. I doubt that's true. If you're a genuine believer, I think it's not true. But what is it that you are doing to advance the cause of Christ? Do you see yourself in that role as part of the kingdom of priests that represent Him to this world and that serve His cause? Every one of us must face the glad truth that we are saved to serve. We are saved to 
Live for His glory. I think secondly here, a word is in order to those who are struggling with the guilt of sin. Indeed, we all are on some level, but is this not a place to rejoice? The full and all-sufficient price for my sin has been paid by Jesus. There is no other sacrifice, there is no other way, there is no fear, but there is a deliverance from condemnation. We should rejoice. We should revel in what Christ has done for our good, not fixate on our sin. And the struggle with sin right now for you may run deep. It may be a challenge that is massive that you are facing Let me point you here to the answer. It is in the work that Christ has done. It is not in yourself, in your performance, in your strength, or in your commitments for the future. It starts with the sacrifice of Jesus that really, truly, sufficiently paid the price. And perhaps you've not come to the place of receiving that gift of salvation. God has not opened your eyes to that understanding. It's important that you recognize here today that God is the final judge of the living and the dead. That there is an eternal judgment for your sin that you can pay with an eternal cost. Or you can turn to what Christ has done and receive this work this great high priest has accomplished in behalf of his people. And the beauty of it is that there is then forgiveness of sin. There is a deliverance from the guilt that you bear, where your conscience is allowed to speak, and you know the sin that you've committed against God. You know the harm that you've caused to others. In the way in which you've not brought glory to His name, there is forgiveness. The one you've offended has taken on the cost of sin and paid that penalty. Will you trust it? Will you turn to Him to serve the living God? We would call you today to respond. But for those of us who trust in Christ's provision of salvation, there is this rejoicing as we gather around this table to say there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And that glorious truth just looks to Him. It's not because of what we've done. It's not because of who we are, but because of what He's accomplished. And that is the comfort that can yield, yes, sweet rest as we pillow our heads at night. To know it rests on him and his work. Not upon me. But far more importantly than how we pillow our heads in this waking world. Is how he has provided eternal rest when we enter into his presence in the next. And so we come to this meal in part in anticipation. To say that there is a, a fulfillment, a completion of this work of redemption that still awaits. When we enter into his presence and are glorified as his people. But we commune at this table with the risen Christ. We commune at this table with the body of Christ, the believers who are gathered here to approach God on his terms with clear conscience. 
how foolish it would be for us to say that we deserve this communion. We've come to this place of communion because we have earned it. There's only one person who has earned this meal for us, and that is our Savior. His sacrifice in our behalf. So let us approach God on His terms with clear conscience, knowing that there is no condemnation at this table because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for His people. Let's pray. Lord, we turn our hearts now to the table and to the privilege that those who have identified as participants in that new covenant of the forgiveness of sin through the sacrifice of Christ can enjoy together. We come, Lord, humbly, not in our own merits, but in the merits of Christ alone. We come to this table and we commune with You through our great High Priest, through the Mediator, who satisfies Your righteous anger against our sin. We come as those forgiven. We come here to commune with our risen, reigning Lord who intercedes at Your right hand. And we come, Lord, here to commune with one another. And I pray that there'd be a beauty to this moment, a freshness to our remembrance of the significance of Jesus' death in our place, the truths that we have reconsidered today that are evident to us. We rejoice in the beauty of the long story for which you have prepared your people through the centuries. And we rejoice as well to just be reminded that Christ is our great high priest and the sacrifice that is fully sufficient for eternity. We rejoice in your presence now and pray that you'd meet with us here and draw us to yourself. Through Christ we pray.